Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Access to fresh water has become an immediate concern in the United States. In recent years, unprecedented droughts have gripped central and western parts of the country, even as demand for water to supply cities, industry, and farming has grown. In California's Central Valley, depletion of ground and river water threatens the country's largest fruit and vegetable growing region and the communities it supports. And competition for water has led to a history of conflict between states across the U.S. Most recently in June, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a decision in a decades-long legal battle between Georgia and Florida over the right to water from a river system that is vital to the city of Atlanta and downstream to oyster fisheries in the Gulf of Mexico. Yet the court's ruling leaves the conflict unresolved, a result that reflects the intractability of so many fights over waterway control over the years. On today's podcast, I'll be talking with an expert on water issues whose research suggests counterintuitively, that water scarcity itself is often not the driving force behind water wars. Instead, a host of political and social factors are the real source of conflict. His research could help government and communities to better understand how water wars might be avoided with positive implications for communities and the environment. My guest is Scott Moore, a senior fellow with the Climate Center and author of a new book, Subnational Hydropolitics, Conflict, Cooperation, and Institution Building in Shared River Basins. Scott is also a water resource specialist with the World Bank's Global Water Practice. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Andy. Great to be here. So the premise of your new book is that political and social issues can lead to conflict over water resources, where conflict might otherwise not exist. Give us some context on how this differs from the traditional view. Sure, absolutely. And thanks again for uh, for having me on the podcast. So traditionally, a lot of people tend to think of a resource like water as uh, something that as it gets more scarce, uh, drives more conflict or co- uh, competition over it. That's something that we see um, over and over again, even if you think of aphorisms that uh, are, are commonly repeated like uh, – uh, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting. Uh, water, you know, uh, water flows downhill to money. Things like uh, uh, things like that. Uh, but what uh, I uh, try to look at it at, in the book uh, is a little bit more of kind of a nuanced uh, understanding of uh, why and how uh, conflict happens over water, uh, as opposed to instances of cooperation. And what I find is that it's usually not. Uh, the case that scarcity of water drives conflict so much as it is uh, political, social tensions, uh, and the types of institutions that determine how water is managed. Uh, so my conclusion and argument in the book is that uh, we really shouldn't think of conflict over water as something that happens because of how scarce it is, uh, but really it has a lot more to do with our uh, our institutions. So you also point out in the book that these water wars are much more frequent between or excuse me within countries than between them. Why is the issue of subnational conflict and you point out that in the that's in the title subnational why is that so important? I think it has a uh, there's a couple of things behind it. One thing that I look at uh, in the book is that in a lot of countries around the world over the last 30 years or so there's been a, a, a trend towards uh, decentralization. So meaning that you uh, take uh, you, you rely more on 
um, uh, levels of government below the central government level to provide more and more uh, government services. Uh, and that tends to mean that uh, these subnational levels of government have become more powerful uh, in a lot of countries. Um, politicians at the subnational level, whether you're talking about, you know, or whether it's called a state, a province, uh, a county, a prefecture, uh, uh, tend to be uh, more powerful and, and have more resources. Um, so on the one hand, you sort of have this process occurring globally where the subnational level has become generally more important. Um, but also with a resource like water, uh, a lot of the concern tends to be just very localized. You know, it's things like in a lot of parts of the world, it's, uh, you know, do you have enough? Are you getting enough uh, of the irrigation water from uh, your upstream neighbor uh, and, you know, your up- who may be from a different uh, uh, ethnic or linguistic group? And, and it's those types of dynamics that, that tend to drive uh, a lot of the kind of conflict or cooperation issues over water. So it's a, it's a pretty local uh, or the dynamics are, are, are pretty local, um, which I think uh, tends to make the, this kind of like subnational level more important. And empirically, and that's one thing I, I do talk a, lo- a little bit about in the book, uh, empirically you, you can see that these types of subnational conflicts are actually a lot more common than any type of uh, dispute between countries over water. You know, one of the things that you also bring up in the book is the issue that water is a very different resource, obviously, than oil or forest products, and it, and it creates conflicts in different ways or there are conflicts around it for different reasons. Why is water unique? I think um, it just is a much more uh, emotional resource, or, or maybe I should rather say it's a resource that tends to just arouse a lot of passions and emotions in people in a way that, you know, it's hard to get people as uh, – as exercised or as excited over, uh, you know, mineral resources or timber or something like that. Uh, And I mean, I think it has a lot to do with just the fact that obviously we all need water to survive. Uh, I think it also has something to do with every uh, type of economic activity requires uh, a certain amount of of water, you know, whether you're a farmer or whether you own a factory, uh, you know, you need a certain uh, amount of water to uh, produce, uh, you know, what you uh, what you use to uh, to live on. And I think that kind of combination of things means that, you know, everybody cares about water and cares about it more intensely than a lot of other resources. So well, it when, also flows, right? It's uh, not just in one place. It's not yeah, a reservoir. Absolutely. That's true, too. Um, and you get and the other that's that's a, a great point. Water is almost always shared. Um, there are very few cases where, you know, a, a community, um, you know, all the water that a community uses comes from entirely within um, within the community. You usually it, it usually involves sharing it with some other, um, you know, group of people or some other jurisdiction. That's exactly right. So you point out uh, in the United States specifically that the laws that govern access to water are very different in the eastern part of the country versus the western part of the country. How is it determined who gets access to water across the United States and how can this or these different rules set the stage for conflict? Yeah, the U.S. is a little bit unusual in that we have uh, a number of different kind of – principles for determining who gets to use how much water. Uh, And as you pointed out, that tends to break down a little bit between the eastern and western states. In the eastern states, we uh, tend to follow a principle called riparian uh, doctrine, which uh, means that water use is, is for the most part, tied to land ownership. So if you own land uh, along a a river, for example, you 
uh, have a, a certain um, that carries with it a certain right to use uh, a certain amount of water from that that waterway. Um, in the West, where uh, there isn't uh, as many, there aren't nearly as many sort of uh, waterways. That principle didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So uh, a different kind of principle is used, which is um, uh, prior called prior appropriation, and that really means uh, effectively that the first person to kind of lay uh, a, a legally recognized claim to uh, water uh, has priority. So. Uh, even if in a given region, you know, you've got uh, lots of different people who who want to use the same amount of water, uh, the person with the the what's called the senior water right gets to use uh, their allotted quantity first, uh, and only then does it go to the you know the uh, the next uh, user and and on down. And if there's not enough water to go around, uh, for the most part, that's just sort of tough uh, <laughs> tough luck for those who who don't have the senior rights. So let's go back to this issue again of the kind of the social and political drivers behind these conflicts, which we kind of alluded to starting out. You know, first off, are we saying that water scarcity itself doesn't lead to conflict? And if it does or doesn't, give us a little bit more specifics on how the, the political and social factors come into play. Sure. Um, so I think um, uh, there are times when scarcity can play um, can play a role. Uh, but what I find in looking and, and what the book really tries to do is look at cases where you have both kind of uh, long-term conflicts, uh, for example, in the Colorado River Basin in the, the western U.S., but also examples where you, that are uh, uh, more cooperative. So uh, actually the Delaware uh, River Basin right here uh, – uh, which uh, uh, Philadelphia is is part of here is a good a pretty good example of uh, where states have uh, have managed to cooperate uh, fairly effectively uh, to manage uh, shared water resources. And I try to look at that over a, a period of time. And so what I find is that um, there are only particular points where scarcity really comes into the equation in terms of de- in terms of really having an influence on how you know state politicians are acting or how. Um, uh, how the disputes are sort of um, uh, uh, generated. For the most part, it has a lot more to do with uh, politics or with um, institutions. So uh, when you have kind of stronger institutions, you tend to have uh, a much lower uh, intensity of uh, of dispute or conflict. Uh, and so what I find is that particularly when you look over time, um, it's not the case that you know, if you have a drought that's associated with an uptick in conflict. In fact, uh, I, in the majority of cases, I, I didn't see any relationship between uh, the degree of water scarcity and the degree of conflict. Uh, instead, it seems to be tied much more to um, the types of uh, uh, people who are involved in uh, in water management and whether it's uh, politicians. And in that case, it tends to be a little bit more contentious or when you tend to have uh, like non-governmental groups being involved in these issues. And there it tends to be more cooperative. You mentioned some specific examples going back to the Colorado River, which is the border between California and Arizona at a certain point. Yes. Um, there, there's some, some, some great examples that you gave uh, about basically um, we don't want those people determining what we do with our resource and it wasn't really looking at is there enough water or is there not enough water. It's like, no, no, no. This is our resource. And I don't remember the details specifically, but we don't want the Californians or the Arizonans taking that resource at our cost basically. 
Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And I think to me that kind of comes back to this idea that I think there is something a little bit unusual about water as a resource that it, it does sort of, you know, it, it people kind of connect to it and relate to it in a way that's not true of a lot of other resources. And I think um, in many cases, politicians uh, can sort of uh, use that uh, to their advantage to kind of whip up a lot of um, uh, a lot of support from people w- like within, for example, their jurisdiction. So in the case that you mentioned, um, one thing that I saw in both California and Arizona is you would have politicians who would um, sort of be using the types of language that you uh, that you mentioned to say, you know, well, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, the, these Californians are trying to steal Arizona's water and I'm not going to let them and therefore you need to vote for me. And the other uh, guy will <laughs> let them steal it, so don't for, for him. Uh, exactly, right? yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, That's yeah. exactly right. Uh, and so, you know, just because I think people tend to like care very viscerally about water, um, that actually in across a lot of the cases that I, I looked at tends to be a pretty effective uh, way to get votes. <laughs> so, so I wanted to bring up the question why this is so critical now. And this comes into the whole climate change issue. It comes to the drying of these rivers, the mm-hmm. underground water resources. And interestingly enough, that Colorado River uh, example has actually been kind of improved in recent years as the water resources actually become more scarce. The conflict has become less. What does that show us? Yeah, absolutely. So that that's one of the um, the big kind of pieces of evidence that I, I look at in the book is, uh, you know, you, you really see, if anything, kind of like an inverse relationship in the case of the Colorado, at least, where um, the, uh, the initial kind of phases of conflict were um, at a time historically when um, flows in the Colorado River were above average. And when you started to get into periods of more intense uh, drought and water shortage, a um, couple through period in the 1970s and then uh, most recently um, uh, uh, after 2000 or so, um, you started to see uh, really better and better cooperation. And I mean, there's been a few exceptions to that general rule, but by and large, uh, the states are, you know, they're talking to each other. They're, uh, for the most part, being very willing to, um, you know, to, to have a discussion and, and compromise on at least uh some issues, and I think fundamentally and, and very differently from the first, um, you know, forty or fifty years of the <laughs> the Colorado River um, sort of uh, uh, story, um, they're willing to accept the need to kind of share um, uh, shrinking water uh, water resources. So they accept that you know we're not going to have as much water in the basin as we used to, and we accept that we're going to need to figure out how to sort of bear that burden collectively, rather than just saying you know. I'm going to get as much for myself as, uh, as I possibly can. Um, but I think in terms of your question about why this matters now, I mean, it really, the, the kind of driving force for looking at this issue, uh, to me, was climate change and thinking about, you know, it, I think in, in many ways, and maybe it's a bias as a water person, but I think many of the, the biggest uh, impacts of climate change that, are, that concern us have to do with changes in the distribution and availability of water. So sometimes that's, you know, looking at things like sea level rise, but uh, in many parts of the world, um, it's being very concerned about how climate change might affect um, the duration and intensity of drought or how it might change rainfall patterns in a way that makes it difficult for farmers to adapt, for example. Um, So I was really interested in looking at this question of, well, given these trends, you know, can we expect to see more conflict over water and, you know, how might we be able to, to prevent it? 
And so in a lot of ways, it's kind of a good news story, uh, to me at least, to sort of find that there's not really much of an association between uh, how water scarce a region is and how much conflict you have. To me, that signals a lot of potential um, for policymakers and, and for the rest of us to kind of work to ensure that we uh, we don't uh, don't have to fight over uh, over our water, and in fact, it can be a good um, catalyst for cooperation. Well, again, as I mentioned in the intro, that's counterintuitive, right? We think less water, more yeah. conflict, and you're showing that, that exactly that that is not necessarily true, right? Yep, exactly. Yep. You know, I, I wanted to bring this over to the energy side yeah. for a little bit. You know, so so many energy industries are dependent on water for their operational needs. How does this all tie in? Yeah, so I think there's you know there's kind of the uh, uh, the kind of uh, effect side, which uh, I, as I just mentioned, you know I, I, I'm uh, we expect to see a lot of changes in how water is distributed as a result of climate change, which is of course primarily uh, the result of of uh, how we've uh, uh, met our energy needs over the the last couple of hundred years and burning a lot of fossil fuels. Um, but then there's also uh, kind of uh, uh, a side of it that relates uh, of water use that relates to uh, more to how we uh, how we use our energy and where we get it from. Um, so uh, coal, which is of course a major contributor to, to climate change, uh, requires a lot of water because you have to wash it uh, and process it before you can uh, burn it. So in a lot of places in the world, you see these issues are actually pretty linked, where uh, you can have uh, the use of coal c- both contribute to uh, to climate change, but also contribute to water scarcity locally because you need quite a bit of water to uh, uh, to process the coal. Uh, in a lot of regions, you also uh, cool power plants uh, by using uh, water. Um, so you can also have uh, pressure on um, uh, like uh, the amount of water that's available for irrigation, for example. Um, another the issue that I've looked at and actually wrote uh, a report for the Climate Center just this past year uh, is on desalination. So um, there are a lot of uh, uh, particularly coastal cities in the world that I think are going to need to rely more on desalination uh, to get their water. So that means uh, taking uh, water from the ocean and taking the salt out of it to use uh, for drinking water. Um, and that's uh, particularly important for um, places that are going to be seeing changes in rainfall because of climate change. Uh, but that desalination process is really energy intensive. Um, so it's very expensive. Um, in some cases, it, it actually contributes quite a lot to a, a country's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So if we can find a way to uh, use renewable um, uh, energy sources to power desalination. That's really a critical technology for uh, not only adapting to cl- or mitigating climate change, but also uh, adapting to water scarcity. So there are a lot of linkages here between uh, water and energy. In the book, you compare the uh, histories of water wars in four countries, the United States, China, India, and France. And you found that there was a relationship between the political systems and the incidence of water conflict. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, those choice of countries was because um, I was really interested in, you know, since I'm kind of focused on the subnational um, level, countries uh, handle how they divide power between a central um, level of government and, and the levels below it in very different ways. So, you know, in China, it's a much more centralized um, system in most ways than what we have here in the U.S. or in India, which have federal systems and in which the states have 
um, rights effectively that are kind of part of the Constitution. And it's sort of, you know, just an inherent part um, of the political system that um, states have a, a, a constitutionally defined role. So I was really interested in exploring like how that affects something like a river basin and how that would affect how states might cooperate or not cooperate um, over water. And what I found is that um, uh, that does tend to, when you have more um, kind of political uh, responsibility or political autonomy given to um, states or other types of subnational levels, it does tend to um, uh, create a little bit more conflict but over water. Um, but there are also ways to um, uh, uh, to kind of address that by creating uh, institutions that that really encourage cooperation. So I found that one thing that's particularly um, uh, uh, conducive to that is when you have some type of body. So here in uh, the Delaware uh, River Basin area, there's something called the Delaware River Basin Commission that uh, has representatives from uh, federal U.S. federal agencies as well as the different uh, states that share the basin. And uh, it's a, a, a body that, that meets pretty regularly that uh, has uh, power to address a, a number of different issues. And But I think even more importantly, it just sort of serves as a platform uh, to have some sustained discussion. And I found that when you have those types of um, institutions, that's really pretty effective at, uh, at preventing conflict over water. So the lack of communication between two sides often is, is a, bad, a bad thing, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah, Talking about usually, those politicians yeah. <laughs> who blame that guy for not defending your water and, and the whole kind of thing, right? Yeah. So. I mean, it, it, you know, there's, there's a couple of complexities to it, but I think it's, it's also fair to say in, in um, uh, overall, you know, when you leave these issues purely to kind of like the political domain, mm-hmm. they tend to be a little bit more um, uh, conflictual and less cooperative. When you can kind of bring... Um, other parties, other voices into the discussion. So again, in the cases that I looked at, uh, non-governmental organizations were really good at this. But you know, I think you could also have a role for uh, universities and uh, maybe uh, you know businesses of some kind, other types of stakeholders who can come in and sort of uh, say, well, you know, maybe we can gain more from. Uh, cooperation and figuring out a uh, you know a a way to share water that's acceptable to all parties. Maybe we can actually gain more from that than uh, through kind of just seeing it as like a zero sum uh, situation where uh, you know as much water as I can get from you is is good for me and and bad for you and that's what I want. Um, then uh, th- those types of uh, uh, of situations are obviously better and more uh, uh, more conducive to cooperation. And, and these outside influences could be environmental groups, they could be industry groups that see you know some, some common reason to, to to resolve these things. If I may, I'm just curious about this recent Supreme Court decision yeah, regarding uh, <laughs> regarding Florida. Um, uh, Georgia and I believe that Alabama comes into play at certain yes. points as well. And this, as far as I understand it, you've got Atlanta that needs the water from this river basin. You've got Florida that relies upon this water as well to to make its oyster beds uh, yeah. in the Gulf healthy. The court has ruled well; it's not really clear how important it is to A or B or whatever. That is a, a situation where you've got a very defined resource and very different needs for that resource. There's a real water issue there, right? So how do you how do you find commonalities? Uh, I mean, obviously, this is a long, ongoing conflict. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's a really um, interesting case because 
in, in a lot of ways, it what we're seeing now between these states in a part of the country that actually historically hasn't really been very water scarce um, really resembles uh, what uh, we saw in kind of the early phases of the Colorado River story, um, which I think is another interesting example of how uh, you know the relationship between scarcity and conflict is is often very um, very nuanced. Um, but the uh, yeah the the gist of it, as you pointed out, is that uh, water use in the metro Atlanta region has just exploded um, over the last couple of decades. Uh, is it so, sucking the river dry? Essentially, is that what's happening? Or um, I mean, it, it's just putting a lot more pressure. I mean, so like a lot of rivers. Um, uh, the this sort of basin, which is actually called the um, Apalachicola Chattahoochee Flint River Basin, it's sort of a, a big connected um, system. Most people just call it the ACF uh, for for understandable uh, reasons. Um, it's uh, it's got a lot of um, uh, uh, well, not a lot, but it's got a couple of, like big storage reservoirs. Mm-hmm. And the the crux of the issue really is how much water. Uh, Atlanta uh, stores and and diverts uh, from some of these uh, these big reservoirs and how that impacts the flow um, where uh, this basin kind of empties out into the Gulf of Mexico, which is uh, which is in Florida. And so the the case really uh, involves Florida alleging that the way that Atlanta uses water, so it's it's partly just the overall amount, but it's also partly the way in which Atlanta uses water and when they use it and how much they release uh, downstream um, is harming uh, the oyster, uh, this uh, economically uh, significant oyster industry from where the the river kind of empties out into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, as well as the environmental impacts um, of that. And it's also kind of worth mentioning and and interesting that uh, the Army Corps of Engineers has a big role in uh, how these uh, reservoirs and dams are uh, are operated, and so there's there's also kind of a, an issue with uh, national politics and and the role of the federal government. But it's a, it's a complicated situation. Uh, the Supreme Court, as you um, uh, as you uh, you mentioned, uh, basically decided to uh, to punt and and return the case to uh, uh, what's called a special master, who's sort of like a uh, an independent official that the court appointed to to try to see if uh, if he could resolve the case between the states. So uh, he's going to, give, going to be given another uh, another chance, um, but I think uh, to me the the key issues, um, you know, if I were thinking about how to resolve uh, resolve this dispute, would be to look and uh, say, you know, well, can we um, uh, can we imagine uh, changing the ways in which um, uh, these flows are are released to the the lower uh, part of the basin to ensure that you have a sort of minimum amount of, uh, of flow for the oyster industry as well as just for the environment generally. And one thing that the court opinion uh, did emphasize, which is, which is significant, is uh, they uh, accepted the validity of Florida's claim that there's a harm to the environment uh, of the Apalachicola Bay. And that's, that's significant because that's not something that the Supreme Court has often in the past uh, recognized, is that sort of environmental priority. Taking that environmental uh, issue a step further, another issue that you point out is the Army Corps of Engineers. Classically, its job was to build new water infrastructure, not necessarily to consider so much the environmental impacts. A lot of the work was reclamation-based work, basically work to, we don't have any water here, we need water here, Army Corps of Engineers figure out how we can get water here, okay? 
that's changing too. Is that right? Yeah, that that's right. Um, the Army Corps has um, uh, historically had a really big role to play in uh, flood control, and a lot of the infrastructure that they operate, like in the southeastern U.S., um, is geared more towards uh, flood control okay. than mm-hmm. uh, you know, like um, kind of reclamation per se. Um, but you're absolutely right that they used to be very focused on just the sort of um, technical aspects of this thing, and and they didn't really think much about. Uh, the environmental implications that has changed a lot um, since really the like early '80s, I would say, uh, and a lot of that came from pressure from uh, environmental NGOs who you know lobbied uh, Congress and these agencies to sort of change how they how they thought about the, these issues. And now the Corps uh, Corps of Engineers has a, a really pretty robust way of uh, engaging with uh, environmental NGOs and a lot of you know regulations and sort of policies in place that try to. Um, you know, try to reduce the environmental impact of uh, uh, of how they operate dams and other other water infrastructure. Let me ask you just a couple more questions here. Sure. You know, given all the challenges that we're seeing in the West, in the East, here in the United States globally, you know, h- how would you like to see your research applied? Yeah, so I do think you know this is a really um, important issue for a lot of um, uh, a lot of places. the 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 big The best example, I think, is um, the case of Cape Town, South Africa, mm-hmm. uh, which back in February of this year kind of gained a lot of headlines because the city basically announced that uh, if uh, uh, the residents didn't dramatically cut their water use, the city would have to literally uh, turn off the taps. Uh, because they were suffering um, uh, a 500-year drought, basically, meaning that uh, it's uh, it was a drought so intense that uh, it hadn't been experienced since um, European settlement of the region. So in the entire modern history of, of that uh, Cape Town region, it, they'd never seen anything like it. Um, and I think that that is going to become a more common type of situation as a result of climate change around the world. So I think, uh, you know, we really have to invest in um, I think building these types of institutions that can prevent uh, conflict over water, as well as other issues, by the way. I mean, I think, um, you know, if you look at some of the political science literature, what I found um, uh, relates pretty well to what uh, people have found in looking at other types of resources, fisheries, uh, uh, forests, and things like that, where um, institutions that are pretty inclusive, that that bring a lot of different stakeholders together, um, but also... Uh, are invested with some resources, some authority to deal with lots of different issues, tend to be much more effective in uh, promoting cooperation uh, over shared resources. So I think it's really that the need to, to focus on these types of institutions. Uh, and I think to also understand, once again, that it's really not so much um, scarcity or shortages that drive conflict over water. It's really much more about our, our politics and how we uh, handle uh, uh, management uh, issues and and sometimes disagreements over over how we use our water. As the water issues do become more intense because of global warming, drying up of resources, how do you think this country is going to handle it going forward? Well, uh, you know, I hope that uh, in the U.S. we we pay a little bit more attention to the question. Um, I think the you know the case in some parts of the country or the situation in some parts of the country. Uh, is is uh, promising. So again, the Colorado is uh, is a pretty good example of that. The U.S. and Mexico have actually, despite you know lots of tensions in other areas, have uh, have been uh, cooperating pretty well on uh, the Colorado, which does flow uh, into Mexico uh, and then empties out um, uh, empties out into the uh, the Gulf of California. 
Um, so, I mean, there, there are some good examples of that. But I think by and large, uh, what we do here in the U.S. Uh, is we really tend to look to settle any kind of dispute over water through the courts. Um, you know, reflect a little bit our, our uh, you know, litigious uh, <laughs> nature of our society more generally. But uh, and courts tend to be a really bad way to address these issues. So the Florida Georgia uh, suit is a great example where you know the justices basically, and I'm, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but basically they kind of took a look at this issue and they said, well, you know. I mean, we sort of think uh, A, but we also see some merit in B, and we don't, you know, we don't really want to figure this out. We 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 think it has to go back to uh, to an expert, and I think that's sort of in many ways that that really like captures a lot of the a lot of the problem. It's the courts aren't a great way to deal with this. Um, it's it's much better dealt with through. Um, these types of shared institutions, especially ones that kind of exist at, at the river basin level. And it's worth, uh, I think, mentioning that we actually did used to have this type of system in the U.S. in the 60s. There was a, a law passed that uh, enabled states to get together and create um, kind of river basin uh, uh, commissions for um, uh, uh, for shared, you know, any kind of waterway that's shared between several states. Um, and these were uh, created several places around the country. Uh, but then in the Reagan administration, um, uh, they cut out funding uh, for these bodies. So they actually technically still exist on paper but haven't uh, existed in practice for a long time. But I think that type of uh, model is something that we could look at going back to. So it needs to be revived, it sounds like. I think so. I think so. Maybe there are ways to do it a little bit better and, you know, ways to make it uh, a little bit uh, less costly on the, the federal budget. But I think uh, I think that is a model that we should, uh, we should look at again. Scott, thanks very much for talking. Thanks very much, Andy. Thank you. Today's guest has been Scott Moore, a senior fellow at the Climate Center for Energy Policy and a water resource specialist with the World Bank's Global Water Practice. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in to Energy Policy Now. For more insights into energy policy and for updates on research and events from the Climate Center, subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy, or visit our website, climateenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.